In the drug epidemic that we're facing, as we are seeing record numbers of people losing their lives, help is drastically needed. With counselors and therapists working tirelessly and honestly working in a field with their clientele that's come to work on a problem that they don't think they have to learn from people that they don't think they're going to learn from. It's one of those unique fields where people come in and they pay for something that they don't really want. The substance abuse field puts our staff in positions of long hours, poor pay, and sometimes disrespect from the people that were there to help. I do want to mention that it is a fantastic and a wonderful field for those who appreciate watching people grow. But it can definitely be a thankless job as well. Clinicians become the alibis for poor behavior from some. Burnout is our greatest downfall that we face if we don't care for ourselves. And I'm very excited to introduce my guest today, who is the very person that clinicians need for their self-care. So please stay tuned and we will be right back. Hey, welcome back to High Wall Clean. My name is Eric McCoy, and I have no shame in my game. I like to get high, and I still get high, but just not quite the same way that I used to. And everything I was seeking on drugs and alcohol, um, I've actually found today, but I don't need anything outside of what my body already makes to get this highness that I'm talking about. Now, I have a great guest today that I am excited to introduce. I'm not sure if he's aware of this, but we are going to get high together. Now, with the pipe, syringe, or dollar bill to snort crap up our nose. <laughs> no, just by talking, speaking of something that we're both very passionate about. You know, and pain, failure, and misery are the stepping stones to success. And actually, real quick, I want to, I want to clarify something really quick. I don't know if I mentioned this before. But my book has been grabbed by another publishing company, and we're getting ready to have it republished in the editors. And this now has been the second time that it's actually been recommended to me, although the first time I shot the idea down because I know what is best and more than people have edited and worked with thousands of authors even though this was my first book. <laughs> Anyways, the name is going to change to the stepping stones to success are pain, failure, and misery. And they think the positive should be the start. Although the point is that pain, failure, and misery within the context of the book are positive also. 
Now, in my book, I talk about my relapse after having 11 years clean and sober, which was caused by changes happening within me. Um, 11 years, right? You're moving into puberty, right? Hormones starting to change things, voice changing. And although actually I was 40 at the time, <laughs> so that may not have been the perfect blame. But check out, check out my book if you want the full story. My guest today is Martin John, who helps those who help. And this is very important since our greatest jobs as clinicians and defined within eth ethics is to always look out for the best interest of our clients. But as I teach for New Creation College in Southern California, along with being an addiction counselor and a consultant also for treatment facilities, I have a huge appreciation for what my guest does. Ethics, which is, again, our guiding force in the field, requires we put our clients first, but for a clinician to put them first, they have to sort of switch that around and put themselves first. Otherwise, they won't be that effective. Martin John has the experiential knowledge of substance abuse and then found his calling at some point. And I want to thank Martin John, the recovery mentor, for joining me. How you doing, Martin John? I am doing very well. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Now, I'm not sure if you've seen any of our shows, and I actually I never yeah. told you how this actually works, there is, and there is a reason for this. There's really no real format for oh, this show. I don't like to know too much about my guests because I like to be educated from the show. I'm a teacher, but I'm more important. I'm actually also a student, and I like to be surprised or informed like our listeners are. Yeah. And to get us started, I was actually just curious about your experience with substance abuse and what brought you to decide to quit and change your life. And the only reason I know this is because I did take a quick glimpse at your website. <laughs> yeah. And, and anybody can just, just visit martinjohn.com. Love to have you visit and reach out to me. Um, so yeah, it, what made... You know, it's funny. Someone recently asked me, what can you do to help someone that's in addiction? And I, and I had to be real honest. And I said, well, um, you know, the short answer is nothing. Like, really, you, the one thing that you can do is just treat them with respect mm -hmm. and give them the proper due that they deserve. And if they're like, I'm going to go out and use get out of their way. Like, it's all right. They're going to use until they don't. And you can give, and the thing is, is offering that respect, offering them just true open-hearted respect of just like, I love you. You're always going to be loved, but I might not have, I might not be able to be here while you do that. But when you're ready, I'm open and willing to help you get somewhere. But Respect and, and, and that, that love is the one thing that I think can help somebody just kind of grow out of their addiction. And it's emotional yeah. to me because when I was 19, someone looked at me and said, with this, with like the most love that I'd ever felt, just looked at me and said, so how's that working out for you? Like not, not to like ask that question in a sarcastic, how's that working out for you? But it's just like, 
how are you doing? And like, I just cried. Like I just like, cause I was miserable. I hated myself, hated everything about my life, hated it all. And that, and that's what started me on a seven year journey of trying to get clean and sober. Um, so I was 19 and I went to my first meeting, wasn't, didn't return to another meeting, um, for four years. Uh, and I was on a pretty, pretty deep, uh, trajectory into mm -hmm. the depths of my using, which, you know, I guess you could say that my, my drug of choice was alcohol, but it was really just escape. And that was my mm -hmm. drug of choice. And, and, and that's what I was doing at the time. And, you know, I stopped, so I have 21 years clean and sober and I finally kind of quit at 26. And what ended up happening was I actually quit at 26 and stepped outside of the rooms of AA and kind of did it without the help of AA. I already had a year clean mm -hmm. and sober and I slipped up and, and, you know, I relapsed for a day. It was literally mm. one evening. I woke up the next, the next morning and was like, oh, that's what powerless means. <laughs> and, uh, and, and at that moment, I also planted the seed of what I do now, which is talking to people about what is it you're recovering to. So I realized that I spent a year being clean and sober, well, sober, because I was still using cocaine on and off uh, during that year that I was not drinking. Um, I, I realized that I was putting things down. I was not using, I was not as much. I was not drinking. I was specifically not drinking because again, that could be determined as my drug of choice. Um, and so I was putting down, putting down, putting down. And when I decided to have a glass of wine with dinner that last time I relapsed, um, because I was like, I want to be someone who can drink a glass of wine with dinner. <laughs> and mm -hmm. I, I, um, I ended up drinking three bottles of wine that night and I only had one. So I had gone out and I had purchased these things while I was drunk and I don't remember that. And, but when I woke up that next day and, and, you know, all that wine was all over the walls of my bathroom, I, I was like, oh, one, this is what powerless to alcohol means. And two, what am I going to pick up? What am I going to do? If like my life isn't going to be about not drinking, my life isn't going to be about not using. And so that's when I planted the seeds about, uh, about what I do now, which is this, this concept of recovering yourself and recovering to something, not just recovering from something. So moving forward into who you are and, and, and beyond that, which you are living under the influence. So even before I ever took a drink, I was living under the influence of my parents, my teachers, the, the world that I was living in. I mean, I started using and drinking when I was 13. And so I had already lived, was living under the influence of my parents who, because I didn't do well in school, I felt like I wasn't well because, and then my teachers who, because I didn't do well in school, I felt like outside of that. And so I constantly felt like I didn't belong everywhere. And that's what I was escaping. And so the thing that kind of made me kind of clean up was, was that one moment when I was 19. And again, it took me six years, seven years to actually 
do anything that made a significant difference, but it was that one person looking at me in the eye and loving me that made it possible for me to get to that point. Yeah. You know, I've been, I've been working in the industry of substance abuse for about 20 years um, with the little relapse that I, I had a six month relapse. Yeah. Um, got really ugly, really fast. Meth was my drug of choice. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, in all of the years that I've worked in this industry, um, I've always been discouraged by how clinicians typically do it. You know, so many of them, it's a directive approach. You have to do this. You have to do that. Mm-hmm. And what if it doesn't, what if it's not for them? And, and this is kind of the thing. I, and I, you know, I, when I work in industries, um, I teach very differently than most. You know, I, as far as, you know, I went through my first program at 16 and at that age, it's really challenging to <laughs> really want to do it, you know, and that's kind of within my book, you know, pain is, is our greatest motivator, but within substance abuse, the pain will eventually go away. And so and it's not know, a deterrent when you're, when you're at that point. Like no, it's not, it, it's not like the pain is, is just kind of like, that's why you're using really. <laughs> yeah. Well, to avoid yeah. the pain. Yeah. But yeah. there has to be a point to where that pain supersedes, you know, um, the continuing versus stopping. But the reality is, is that if people don't change that motivation, it's never going to last. You know, they have to move towards the looking for something good or something better in their lives and goals and dreams, things are moving towards um, rather than, you know, people get sober because of what they don't want, but stay sober because of what they do want. Right. What they find. Right. And um, yeah, I've, I've always been so <laughs> different than, than most clinicians. Um, and you know, when I, when I sit down with cl- clinicians and I have to tell them, I'm like, look, sobriety is just a beverage choice. Like you got to get yeah. these people, you got to get these people like excited about what it is that beverage choice is going to give them. Mm. Right. And, and it's a, it's, it's always this thing where it's just like, I got this much time and yes. Okay. I can sit here and I say, I have 21 years, but that don't really mean much. Like mm. what, what, what means the most is what I have built in that 21 years. Not mm. that I haven't drunk in 21 years. Mm. Yeah, hundred percent, you know, um, and I liked, I like your target, you know, of who you work with because, you know, the clinicians or the helpers, like it said, you know, you help the helpers, you know, yeah. I think I, I saw that on your website. Mm-hmm. Yes, where, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like my, my focus is for healthcare workers or, 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 you know, like, and we have to understand that we are all working as, you know, like caregivers. We're all caregivers. We're giving care to our neighborhoods. We're giving care to each other. We're giving care to our family. We're giving care to our friends. And the thing is, is when I talk about like, I want to help caregivers, like the caregivers to our, our caregivers, if I can get on a little soapbox real quick, like our caregivers are, are carrying so much of the weight in our culture right now, because our culture is overworking people. They're taxing people to a degree 
the market taxes people to a degree that is unsustainable. And then we move to, then when you get home, like you go to social media, you go to Netflix, you go to all of these things that help distract you. And I call all these things pacifiers. Mm. You know, we have a whole society of people that are all, you know, I doped out, like I just on their own dopamine because they're constantly like feeding that fuel of their pacifiers. And we don't talk about those as addictions Mm -hmm. and yet they're sick. And as they continue to pacify, they're getting more stressed. They're getting, you know, more addicted and Mm -hmm. they're going to need help. And our caregivers are not supported the way that we like, like we're just shoving people towards caregiving Mm -hmm. and yet not supporting the industry. And so I mean, yeah, treatment, big thing. treatment programs brutalize their clinicians. You know, yes. I mean, I, I've been, you know, program director, clinical director. I've always worked very hard to, um, you know, let everybody know that, you know, if you're reaching that point to where it's a little overwhelming, please let me know, you know, we'll get you some time off, you know, we'll figure out ways that we can, you know, help you. Because yeah, it's brutal. I mean, it, you know, you get huge caseloads, you know, you care, you know, you get, you know, I mean, they spend all their time listening to shit, (laughs) you know, horrible things, you know, painful things, um, you know, and then, you know, it's hard for a lot of clinicians to let it go when they go home, you know? And I think that's the case because so many of them have lived through shit. Yeah. And so they see their clients and they're re-triggered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. A lot, of, a lot of times. Mm-hmm. I mean, the relapse rate too is, is high, um, you know, for, you know, for me, it was interesting because, you know, I, I had owned a program in Anaheim. It was, uh, we did, we did alternative sentencing and mm-hmm. I had, um, a huge issue with my business partner. He was the finance guy. I was the knowledge guy and uh, I did not like the direction he was going in. And so we got in a huge argument and I was like, all right, I'm out of here. You know, <laughs> you know, he ended up buying out my, my shares and stuff like that, you know, of, of the company. And so I went to work for this lady, Nancy Clark, who's a great lady. Um, she does alternative sentencing also. Mm-hmm. And I took a huge pay cut you know, as a result of going from owning a company to, (laughs) and I did a lot of her court liaison stuff, which I loved. I I love that stuff, but I lost my passion, you know, and that's a lot of what happened with me was all of a sudden things didn't seem that important anymore. Right. You know, I didn't feel like I was doing really what I wanted to do um, because with my program, you know, we had, I, I mean, we had an amazing program. It was very good. Um, I had great staff, you know, I made sure that our clinicians were taken care of, um, and, uh, and I loved it. And then all of a sudden it was like, now I'm over here. What am I doing? And, um, and the, you know, the story kind of goes on. We rented a room to a guy cause I was, you know, my, my girlfriend who's actually now my wife now, but we had rented a room to a guy because we needed money (laughs) Mm -hmm. and, uh, and we knew he had a drug problem, but 
you know, he's like, I've been sober for so long. And I told him, I said, look, if, if I think that you're using drugs, I'm going to go in your room. I'm going to find your shit and I'm going to throw you the fuck out of here. I mean, that was my, you know, my statement. And, uh, I started seeing the signs. I went in his room. I grabbed, I found four glass pipes. I smashed three of them, but I kept one because I wanted to say, okay, here it is. Get out, you know? Right. And, uh, and I forgot about it. I didn't see the guy for a while. I had a dream. <laughs> I literally had the most visual dream of being high on meth. I could taste it. I mean, when I woke up, I could taste it, yeah. you know, I could feel the high and I couldn't let it go. I mean, it was just that I lost my passion and here's my drug of choice that can help maybe get me through this difficult moment. Yeah. You know, and that's what sort of, you know, set me on. It took one hit. I mean, I was, I'm the epitome of the meth addict. I, you know, sober, I have integrity. I love you. I care about you. I'll do anything for you. Any, anything you need. Um, I take meth in my body. I will steal from you, rob from you, not care, care at all about you. And it was the most powerful thing for me because I was able to see it, you know, from, all of the years that I'd done that, I mean, not at the moment, when I, when I look back, all those <laughs> years, you know, being sober, clean, everything I did, and then taking that hit and where my life went like that. Yeah. And, uh, and so I actually look at my relapse as a great thing just because of, you know, I, I always twist things into positives. <laughs> yeah. You know, our failures, you know, I think, I think, you know, we have this, we have this kind of culture of toxic positivity today where we're just like, think about, you know, like, like think about things, you know, in the moment as positive, but it's like, and try and stay, you know, like only think positively and stuff. And I really think that like looking at it and being able to admit, yes, that was, that was my failure. And it, brought me somewhere right we have to be able to look yeah. at the fact that we've failed we have we have come somewhere that um we didn't intend to go and we lost and we failed but among that and because of that i was able to grow even further and it's not it's not separate it's and it's and you know when you say fail or or, or relapse that's not that's not a bad thing like you no. know you know, I, I interviewed because I, I host the Recover Yourself podcast and, and I interviewed this guy, Ken Bain, who is the uh, who's the president of the Good Teachers Association here in the United States. And and he he wrote this book about super courses and, and he, he 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 said we provide more punishment for those who have tried and not yet succeeded hmm. than we do for people who haven't tried at all. Yeah, it goes you back know. to, you know, the whole Edison thing, right? I found a thousand ways it didn't work before I found the way that it did. That's right. I mean, that was the premise, too, of, the, of my book and sort of with the failure concept in there. You know, if you're in recovery and you, let's say you get, you know, you got 20-something years, right? Mm -hmm. And let's say you relapse, right? Mm -hmm. And you come back and you make it back in and you get right back on track, you're not a failure. There's, no, mm -hmm. there's nothing in there that, that says you're now a failure. There's a quote that I have, like that I've posted before, which is like, we provide, you know, um, it, like, it's not whether you succeed or fail that deserves, like, praise or disdain. Mm -hmm. But it is that you have, you have continued to grow no matter which happens. 
I mean, I look at this stuff and to me, you know, I tell clients that you guys are the luckiest people in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, you get an opportunity to work on things that, that people out there, the normal people, the rich people, the people that just have it all, the people that are handed everything, they never work on because there's no reason for it. Right. There's no pain. There's got to be, you know, until we have uncomfortability or we have pain in our life, you're not going to work on anything. Right. And, you know, society hated our addictions. And so it was really easy for us to be able to look at that. Whereas, you know, if you have an addiction of hoarding money, ain't nobody yelling at you. You hoard away, son. Like you have a, you have a, you you have an addiction with like shopping. Whoa. Let's not put that in the, in the DSM five. Like we're not, we're not going to put shopping in the DSM five. Why? Well, kind of runs our fucking system. You know, like, like we're not going to put, you know, uh, entertainment or, you know, we put games, we, we are, we are sliding games into the DSM. Yeah, we've got internet, nice. internet addictions, yeah. you know. internet, phone, and phone. we are just yeah. shoving more and more things into your life that you can yeah. escape with. And yet we're just telling you to consume it more. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the workaholics are praised. You know, they, they mean, pat themselves on the back and they, oh, I'm a workaholic. Oh, yeah, look oh. at the money I'm yeah. making because, you yeah. know, now I can support, you know, and, and buy these million dollar homes. That right. Nobody really needs. That's right. <laughs> like you don't, you don't need that kind of space. Like you, you, you need that kind of space because you feel so unworthy or whatever, whatever's going on, you know, that we, that we've had to face. That was the reason that we, we were escaping. Now they need to escape and they need to protect and they need to be secure and they need to, you know, hide from, you know, death. The one of the wonderful things that I always say is that it's great because I'm living on borrowed time. I have 21 years. I didn't die 21 years ago. The fact that I didn't die 21 years ago means I get to live on this, on this earth longer. And, and being someone who's living on borrowed time, I get to do whatever I want. I ain't afraid. Yeah. 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 It's funny. I, I say, I say that, uh, you know, being a meth addict for me to have acquired the diagnosis that I have mm-hmm. within the DSM five, I had to have committed a crime. It's one of the few, di- you know, the few, you know, diagnoses wow. that you have for a clinical disorder that I had to have committed a crime to acquire. Think about that. Wow. That is, that's, that's, that's so yeah, that's a, that's a beautiful, like, I didn't, I didn't know that. I don't, I don't study the DSM-5. So I'm not, I'm not, I, like, I'm not a clinician. Uh, I'm not a licensed Yeah, because they have, I, you know, they, they classify meth under, it's just an amphetamine use disorder, you know. Right. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. You know, and they're, you know, opioid use disorder and, you know, mm-hmm. things like this. And they're yeah. illegal substances, you know. Right. And so, I mean, it, that, that just, it popped in my head one day. I was thinking about it. I was like, going, damn. I have to have committed a crime by using a substance that's uh, Schedule One, according to the federal government. Right, right. You know, to gain this illness status of an illness, right? <laughs> like, and the thing is, like, you have to be able to, you have to have committed a crime and be able to either admit it or be caught for it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like, so, you know, I. You know, I, I love the DSM just as a, okay, this is like, let's know that this isn't it, right? Like, I always try and push beyond the DSM, which is why I utilize terms like pacifier and like, like, look, if you're, 
like most people don't want to just kind of sit down and say, yes, I'm addicted to something or another. Um, unless it's sugar, unless it's work, unless it's something that they can just, <laughs> right. you know, like, Oh, look at that. I got a sugar addiction. Whoa. But it's just like, no bitch. Like, yeah, <laughs> y- you do. And sugar is, sugar is probably worse than mm. some of the schedule one drugs that we have <laughs> like yeah. like in terms of addiction like in terms of in terms of like i know so i have a diagnosis of ms in 2014 and in 2014 i got diagnosed with ms i lost 80 percent of the motor function on my left side which is all back and i'm mm. good and and what have you i just had an mri and and things are stable and i mm. don't take meds for it um so in order to medicate my MS, I, I have a diet and my diet, I don't eat sugar. Um, I had my MRI and I had a couple Christmas cookies afterwards. And I thought that that'd be fine. The next day I had two more. The next day, which was two days ago, I had five. And I realized that it's the sugar, the sugar mm-hmm is telling me to eat sugar. I don't want to. I didn't eat sugar for months. And then all of a sudden, I was just like, just because I had my MRI already, I'm going to have a couple. And then the next day it came back and the next day, and it's like, that's addiction. That's addiction. That is is living under the influence of this thing. I mean, the truth is everybody out there has some form of compulsive something. Right. It's. I mean, you know, the, and you know, like if you believe in God, right, God made us to get high. Mm-hmm. Think about it. Dopamine, mm-hmm. right? Dopamine is how we get high, high while clean, right? <laughs> and, uh, and so we're made that way. Anytime something feels good, we naturally want to do more of it, right? You know, and I, you know, I still smoke cigarettes, you know, um, I drink monsters. <laughs> we'll drink mm-hmm. half coffee, you know, yeah. in the morning. you know, and I, I kind of get, I'm at a place where it's like, you know, I mean, I know the consequences. I know, you know, I make a decision for myself. Um, the good thing behind smoking is that I'll never rob somebody or break into people's houses or do things like that, you know, that are going to harm somebody, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but we all make decisions, you know, on what we're okay with and what we're not okay with. Right. You know, and that's, um, your, you know, like, and I, I look at all those things. It's like, yeah, okay. Like monster energy. It's great that you're aware of the fact that your monster energy drinks and your coffee and, 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 and I like to say, so, so I used to smoke, I mean, right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know if that can be obvious or not it's with all my history. So, uh, and then I quit. And then I started smoking cigars on the odd occasion. Oh, yeah. Eventually, that odd occasion became every day. Sure. And, um, and I went to a friend of mine and I was like, God, like, I'm not happy about this, like that I'm smoking cigars every day. Um, and, he, and he looked at me really just kind of nonchalantly and went, well, you're going to do it until you don't. Yeah. And, I, and I was just like, fuck all. Yeah. Like, yeah. What an attitude shift, right? As soon as, cause I was judgmental about it and I was, and, and, and I was living under the influence of it. And then the judgment stagnated my ability to actually say, I didn't want to do something. Mm-hmm. And, and so the next time I went to the cigar shop, I was like, well, I'm going to do it until I don't. Am I going to do it today? 
And, and the judgment was gone because then I was actually making the choice, mm-hmm. right? I was actually making the singular choice. Am I going to do this right now? And one day, not long after that, I said, no, I'm not. And I walked out and I don't remember, I don't recall if that was the last time I did it. Maybe I had another cigar a couple weeks later or whatever. But then I was like, I think I had a cigar like maybe a month later. And I was like, I, what, what am I doing? You know, I was just kind of like, this isn't what I want to do. And, 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 and I hadn't had a cigar in probably about two years, three years now. And, and, you know, it's interesting. I don't drink coffee. I don't drink uh, monsters. I don't like, yeah, I don't, I don't eat sugar. Wrong with I don't... You, man? <laughs> now, a lot of this also is because of my MS, right? Like I, it was going to take my walking from me, right? I, I was bedridden for, for a while. And, um, and, and if you're going to take my ability to walk, and, I'm not, I'm not going down without a fight. Yeah. I, I get that. You know, how did you, yeah. how did, how long did you smoke? Cigarettes. Um, yeah, to? let me think. Uh, I probably started at 23, 22 and I quit I uh, probably 12 years, probably 34, 35. I quit. How, how much were you smoking a day? Oh, I was smoking probably 40 to 50 unfiltered hand rolled cigarettes a day, like a diesel. Okay. How did you stop? cold turkey cold turkey it was cold turkey and and i i literally like i i sat in a dark room for two days like huddled in a mass like just like like my girlfriend and i quit right around the same time and she was the impetus for my quitting because i hated smoking for the last two years i smoked i was just like i don't want to be doing this see that's where Um, yeah that's where i struggle yeah i i like smoking i do and and that's where i that's always where i kind of come back to and but then I think, you know, obviously with your health, it's not, you know, obviously there's a lot of risk behind it. Yeah. It'd be good to be able to stop. And uh, I always, I tell my wife, it's like, you know, the only way it's going to happen is they need to put me in a chemically induced coma uh, for maybe a week, yeah. <laughs> you know, because it's funny with, you know, everybody thinks with smoking, you know, I know physiological effects. I teach this stuff, but right. people think with smoking that, you know, it's just such a great stress reliever. You know, I smoke is how it reduces stress, you know, that kind of, and actually, no, it's not. You're actually, you smoke to relieve the withdrawal symptoms, you know? Right. You're at a place where in order to feel normal, you have to smoke. Yeah. Otherwise it's painful. Yeah. It's that it's those withdrawal stuff. That's all you're alleviating is the withdrawal because the half-life of of nicotine is very short. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. And so it's, uh, it's ironic. And I, you know, um, you know, I smoke about a pack a day and I have for uh, 20 something years, you know, what do you smoke? You know, it was interesting. Like I, I hadn't, I hadn't thought about smoking in a long, long time. And I saw an old ad for camels and I was like, oh yeah, that's right. Like before I started hand rolling yeah. my, my own, I was smoking camel non-filters. Like I was just like, that's right. I was like, I was, and then, and then like immediately as I saw like the non-filter pack and like the, the you know, the yeah. little, the little soft bag and stuff, I was like, Ooh, I can taste that Turkish, you know, like, I was yeah. just like, Oh man, yeah. like, like it's such a, it's such a, it, it, it's so, I just remember it, you know, like, and it was a thing. Yeah. When I, in 2002, um, I got, I had been arrested four times in six months in 2001, hmm. um, looking at a lot of time in prison. And I got a, I got a way better deal than that. 
but I, I obviously didn't smoke during my entire custody time, you know? Yeah. Um, and when I got out, I was going to, you know, I'm not going to start smoking again. I'm not going to do it. And of course, one of the sentences that one of the, one of the parts of what I was ordered to do was to go to six months in a residential treatment program when I got out of custody. Right. Yeah. Everybody smokes, you know, everybody. That's and I, thing. and I remember going, I lasted three days, you know, I remember going yeah. there and I'm just, you know, not going to smoke. I'm not going to do it. And everybody's smoking and I love the smell of them, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, I just, I, I pulled the, I'm just going to have one. Right. Yeah, just gonna have one it. dude, and I go to this guy. I go, hey man, is there any way I can just bump one cigarette from you? You know, he gives it to me, and I smoked. That was that was it. Um, and I went and bought one pack, and <laughs> then it. I bought That's one it. carton. I, yeah, know. yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I know, because it's just like I save a lot of money. I buy a carton. <laughs> like I remember, I remember the first time I smoked a cigarette. I woke up the next day feeling gross, film on my body, and everything, and I was like, holy fuck, like why do people do this? I will never smoke again. By noon that day, I was yeah. smoking again. Yeah. We're and, committed. <laughs> yep. And then, and then all of a sudden, like you said, like in order to feel normal, I have to continue smoking. And so like I woke up and it wasn't, you know, that first day I had Christmas cookies the other day after my MRI, I woke up feeling the same exact way. Mm. Like, I felt like my body was gross. My breath was bad, like all this stuff. And I was like, why do I do that? Mm-hmm. And by the time that next day ended, I had done it again. Yeah. And then the next day again. And by that, after I woke up that next, that last day, I woke up and it was normal. And I was like, well, I don't feel bad. And I was like, wait a minute. I bet I do feel bad. I bet I feel so bad, but I'm used to it already. And, right. and I was like, Mm-mm, I don't want to wake up and not recognize how shitty I actually feel. Right. You know, and for you, like smoking, you wake up and you're like, okay, I got to I got to have a cigarette to, to start my day. Yeah. You know, and I get that. But, but like, the thing is, is you're waking up and you're feeling shitty, but you've been doing that for 20 fucking years. So you're not feeling shitty. You're feeling normal. Yeah, Absolutely. You know, and the same thing, same thing people do when they wake up and they get their coffee without their coffee. They can't wake up. That's because the coffee is now the influence for your life. Like you are living under the influence of this. Absolutely. You know, the difference, you know, you go back to the behavioral addictions and, and this is where people don't understand chemical, you know, for people that have not been through it, you know, the chemical dependency mm-hmm. versus the behavioral addictions is the tissue dependence. Right. And so, you know, you do a substance for a period of time, your body changes, you know, your body adapts and it says, okay, we, we need this now to do this job. Right. And because we've got way too much of whatever they're putting in, that's going to kill our bodies if we don't alter and change. And so we go from homeostasis to allostasis, this new norm. And that's where people don't really quite understand the, you know, with methamphetamine, if you've been doing a lot of it for an extended period of time and you stop, you are going to go into such a major depression and, and truly at the diagnosis of major depression, that state of anhedonia, where you probably just like to kill yourself. Oh yeah. Like psychosis, like mental and audible, like uh, 
uh, uh, hallucinations, like yeah. all of that stuff is part of withdrawal of math. Yeah. And, and you get to that, you know, and, and you know, what'll fix it. Yep. You know, the thing that'll fix it and it'll take it all away. And, uh, and that's, that's what you do. I mean, it's like, how yeah. do you, how am I supposed to function if I'm going to feel like this when I have a solution that would take away it all, you know? That's right. And that's where the, the, you know, the difficulty and the challenging part is of stopping, you know, for people. Right. And, you know, I, I, I always like to look at, you know, sex and love addiction as well as being something because sex and love is so, so innately driven by, you know, chemicals in your body, mm -hmm. you know, like, like when you feel that like love and attraction sort of thing, like, like you can, I mean, it's not going to give you psychosis. It's not going to give you hallucinations right. if you don't get laid tonight. And that's yeah. the big, that's like, but sex and love addiction is the biggest behavior one. So when we look at this, when we look at like sex and love addiction is as bad as it gets for behavioral. I mean, maybe we can talk about like gambling and stuff because there's a big high there, but that's gambling is a, you know, survival as well, maybe, but, but, but then you look at, you look at meth, you look at alcohol, which quitting alcohol can kill you. It can. Right. And, like and, depending and, on your. And sedative hypnotics, you know, yeah, benzos yeah, yeah. and barbiturates. Those are that's like right. alcohol pills, you know, mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, those are the the only two real the classifications two. of of withdrawal that can kill you. Yeah, yeah, and and you know a lot of people want to say heroin, 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 but it's like yeah, okay. I mean, you, you can die of symptoms from heroin, heroin withdrawal, but you're not going to die from heroin withdrawal. No, you may it makes you want to die. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I mean, you know, like uh, you can die from dehydration you can die from other yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. But that's, that's, you know, like you can take care of that where you cannot take care of uh, benzo. Like if you're going to die from benzos, from quitting benzos, if you're going to die from quitting alcohol, that's internal body stuff that, that yeah. you need people around to help yeah. with. So, yeah, it's a, uh, you know, the ones that I, I actually see the worst um, that end up in the hospital for opioids is, is methadone. Uh, methadone yeah. withdrawal, um, uh, you know, a lot of times they literally cannot hold anything down, including water. And so they yeah. end up in the hospital, you know, getting, you know, mm -hmm. water. Getting forced. Know. Yeah, forced. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, no, and, and that's a, that's huge. And, you know, it's, it's about just staying hydrated through the withdrawal period. Like, mm -hmm. and yeah. that's, a, that's a big deal. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's, a uh, you know, it's, it's tough. It's definitely tough. You know, I, and you mentioned sex and love addiction because um, that is actually what we see as the most common go-to for people getting off substances, you know, mm -hmm. is uh, they go from yeah. the dependency of the chemical to now I want to have a person that's going to help numb me and comfort me and love me and make me feel good. Um, and that's the biggest battle we, we face with people in treatment, right? You know, they instantly want to go to sex, you know, and, and especially the younger people. Yeah. 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 Um, especially today. I think with, with, with younger and younger people today of like growing up with porn in their back pocket every yeah. fucking minute, like, you know, I mean, I mean, porn, porn is just omnipresent right now it is everywhere and mm -hmm. there are there are so many people making a living off of it there are so many people that are dipping into it and it's so yeah. accessible i mean there are games there are you know like and and with the 3d stuff i mean i, I haven't right. i haven't ex experienced yeah. any of that but i'm sure like that's what you know like it's interesting the porn industry made dvds like a lot of people don't realize this we mm -hmm. wanted dvds so you can have different angles of certain shots mm -hmm. like that's the, the, the innovation of 
entertainment starts in porn. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, I can walk down the street and watch porn on my phone, Yep. you know, just as I'm walking, you know, mm -hmm. uh, while I'm driving, you know, I mean, yeah, you can, yeah porn, porn's everywhere. To, everywhere. To, to tip of your fingertips, you know? Right. And, and nobody wants to kind of step up and be like, yeah, I have a problem with this. Not nobody. A lot of people are just kind of like, whoa, like, well, and, and we're losing connection with people. Yeah. And the true diagnosis for it is extreme. You know, mm -hmm. because it has to have, um, you know, negative, like drastically negatively affected your life. You know, like you're, you're late to work every day because you're jacking off, you know? Right. Um, you know, just, you know, you're destroying relationships, you know, I mean, every, every, every literal symptom of chemical dependency, except for tissue dependency, you have withdrawal. You're thinking about it all the time, you know, right. your intolerance, you're watching more and more of it. Right. You know, all, all the same symptoms. You lose family and friends, you know, you're, 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 you know, losing out on your social events, your work, you lose jobs, you know, everything that comes uh, with chemical abuse is the same thing. Right. Ironically. And yet when yet we're not going to, we're not going to say boo to it until you reach a certain level until right. you have done something specific. And that's the, you know, that's why I like talking about these things is, you know, so when I train counselors and clinicians, I talk to them about, porn. I talked to them about Netflix because how many, because it's not, when you come home from work, you turn on Netflix and you go cook and you got Netflix going, you got the office going for the umpteenth millionth time, right? Like, and, <laughs> and, and you're, and you're, and you're cooking your dinner and stuff and you only have that on to have noise. Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, what are you, what are you escaping? What are you, what are you pacifying yourself? And it's like, well, yeah, but one of, one of my clients once asked me, well, what about if I just come home and I'm tired and I just want to chill out? And I was like, well, that's fine. But do you ever ask yourself why you're living a life that you need to escape from? Mm -hmm. And they were like, oh, yeah, I guess, I guess that's true. Why do, you, why do you constantly in this position that you have to come home and chill out or chillax just every day? Like you've designed your life mm -hmm. and you've designed it to, you know, escape for three hours every night so that you can wake up and go through it again so that you can escape for three hours every night. And when I work with in my workshop and stuff, it's all about like, well, let's look at the triggers that we have in our day, because as a, as a counselor or clinician, you're going to have a trigger walk into your office every day, mm -hmm. every day, you're going to have a trigger walk into your office. And when you're triggered, so if you have, if you have a problem with like, you know, if your father told you your whole life, like you don't pay attention, you don't pay attention, you're not, you know, you do bad in school because you don't pay attention. And this, this phrase pay attention is kind of in your periphery. And then you're, you're with your client and, and like you get distracted and your client says, Hey, are you paying attention? Boom. Triggered. Right. All of that stuff is going to come up. Now you're, are you going to be able to treat that person with respect and dignity? Because you're not, you're not, you're no longer working from a place of an open heart. You're now working from a place with blinders on. And we all know that feeling, right? As soon as, as soon as someone triggers us, our blinders go on. All we can see is that one thing and we can't, we can't open ourselves up. And so helping clinicians get to a place where it's like, look at your pacifiers. Where are you pacifying? Why are you getting triggered? What are you choosing in your life? And when they can do that, they can be like, oh, uh, when, when they can trace back the story, what, what ends up happening is they realize that, oh, wait, 
I only feel that way because my dad told me that I, mm. I, um, I, I didn't pay attention. Actually, I'm paying attention just fine. Like I was writing a note or I was doing something or he called me out and he has the right to call me out. Yeah. I mean, that's, a, that's kind of that counter transference, you know, yeah. concept, you know, where the clinician gets, you know, either somebody looks like somebody or says something, you know, mm-hmm. that resembles something that they heard from their father or something. And then it, it changes the relationship, you know, between the clinician and the client. Yeah. Um, I do one of the classes I do is self-growth and, you know, like a self-growth and spirituality class mm. uh, for my, you know, people working to become counselors, because that part is very important, you know, as the self-growth, yeah. you know, you're going to, and I tell my, I tell my students all the time, I said, you know, you're going to go into this, you're going to get into this job and you're going to work there. You're going to have clients that are going to go tell you to fuck off. You know, you're going to have people that are going to disrespect you. You know, you're going to have people that, you know, um, are, you know, are going to create emotional problems for you if you don't control yourself. Right. You know, and, yeah. uh, and that's the big question everybody has or asks, you know, needs to ask themselves is, am I in control or are they in control? You know, yeah. And yeah. obviously and, we need to make sure we're in control. <laughs> and our, our, our clinicians are trained to know what in control looks like. So I often get a little, you know, like I, I, we have to make sure that our counselors are being honest Mm -hmm. because when they are in the position that they find themselves in, they don't, uh, depending on their personality, depending on what they're willing to uh, be vulnerable with, it's very often that they can, that they can just be like, no, I, I got this, but it's like, whoa. Mm-hmm. let's take a step back let's yeah. take a breath where is this trigger happening like and it's like i'm not triggered i'm not triggered and it's like whoa let's, yeah. let's take a step back let's take a deep breath you know and it's like yeah. it's like we don't we don't we don't want to get triggered and of course not why would we want to get triggered but it happens and if it's going to happen we have to make sure that we are not you know and, and in our society our clients those, those who are struggling with addiction can easily just, if we say that they did something wrong, society's not going to bat an eye. Mm. And that, that hurts my heart so much. The idea that like, oh, they were bad before and they haven't proven that they're, they're good. And so we're just gonna, you know, like I got upset, but I, as a counselor got upset and I'm just going to blame it on the fact that they came in and said something that they were well within their rights to say, mm-hmm. but it didn't land the right way, you know, mm-hmm. and, and very often in large, in large treatment centers, the counselors are going to get the backing of management regardless. Yeah. I mean, that's the important part, you know, yeah. the real important part is that they have owners supervisors, you know, whoever it is that's looking out for the clinician's interest. Right. You know, and, and trying and, to take- and, and the grand clinician's interest, the, 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 the big interest of the clinician, not just to, not just to shield them from their mistakes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's that burnout, you know, obviously we ah, talk about huge. that, you know, that takes people out, you know? Yeah. Um, and uh, it, and I've seen it get ugly with people, you know, I've mm-hmm. seen it very ugly 
um, where people where they've quit on the spot, you know, mm-hmm. just walked out, um, you know, and it really didn't have to go that way. Right. Um, because, you know, obviously that individual didn't catch themselves early enough, right. you know, to be able to keep themselves in a place. I mean, I, you know, I've been, again, in 20 years, I've been in this industry. There's not much that surprises me anymore. Right. Um, I've seen so much and, and, uh, I've been threatened by clients. I've been, you know, and, uh, it's, I, I learned and it's cool. I learned at some point in time to really stop caring what people think about me. Yeah. You know, that was, that was really a big thing. Um, because what became more important is what I thought of myself and, um, and being myself, you know, I mean, that's the whole deal is, is we got to figure out who we are. You know, my book, my book, I start, my first line starts out with, I killed that motherfucker was the Mm -hmm. first thought that came to me that early morning when I woke in 2002 or something. And, uh, and I put that in there because it really, it always reminded me of, I lost myself many years ago, you know, Mm -hmm. I killed me you know, whoever, whoever I was, and I completely lost connection with, you know, values, morals, any of that kind of stuff. And there's a lot of clinicians that work in this field that haven't even figured out who they are. Mm -hmm. You know, some of them, especially when they start early on in their recovery, but I mean, I've, I've seen people that have one year in recovery that are working in the industry um, because that's always the go-to, you know, I know it. I know the industry, so I'll be great. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I have experiential, you know, I have experiential yeah. lessons and stuff. And it's like, yeah. yeah. But well, they never I figured can. out who they are. And, yeah. uh, and so they, they don't have a real connection with themselves. Right. Um, and that makes things very challenging. Yeah. You know, and that's why my work is called Recover Yourself. Because, you know, and, and I believe that, you know, as soon as you're born, you're living under the influence of your parents, you're living under the influence of your surroundings. And so if you're living under the influence of your parents, as soon as you're born, and that means you never got to really know who you were ever, Mm -hmm. you are like, you know, I mean, if, if you believe in God or the universe, I don't care. It's just like, but if you can, if you look out and you say, Hey, like I am all of this, you know, like the whole, like the, like the opening of Lion King, you know, the only thing that's mm. greater than you, right? Like, and that's true. Like everybody that's born, the only thing that's greater for, than us is God, is the universe, is mm. all that is as a whole. But we are here right now and perfect as we are. You know, I always like to say, like, yeah. don't let your definition of perfection rob you of yours. Right. You know, you are perfect right now. And if you can be here and be you not living under the influence of other people, places, things, or ideas, then you are you. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think, you know, part of the thing is realizing too, that there's nobody perfect, you know, I mean, imperfect. Well, nobody's done. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, it, you know, within, Cause some people, some people have that thing of like, oh, this person's just so perfect and uh, all this kind of stuff, you know, looking at other people. Right. And, uh, it's, you know, we want to kind of reevaluate that, you know, we're all, and, and we're all humans. Right. We're all humans and perfect in that. And that's what I, that's why I like to say, like, don't let your definition of perfection rob you of yours. Mm-hmm. Because the thing is, is like, when we say that person is perfect, that's a definition of perfect. Mm-hmm. 
mm. that is robbing you of something. Sure. Right. Like you have a concept of what perfect is. If you can remove your concept of perfection and go, all that is, is, yep. then, then, yep. then perfection exists at this moment, even if you got a fucking stem in your mouth. Yep. You know? So, hey, I want to give you an opportunity to uh, just tell a little bit of real, real quick about more specifically what mm-hmm. you do. Yeah, yeah. So uh, there are two sort of offers that I have uh, kind of constantly happening is one is my workshops. My workshops are professionally uh, are, are open to both professionals and the public. For professionals, I offer continuing education units through NADAC as well as Illinois and Indiana licensing boards. So um you can get those depending on which one works for you. Uh, those workshops are entitled Recover Yourself. I will be putting a couple more in the pike uh, this year, one entitled um, Triangulating Trauma and one that is all about personas and building, mm-hmm. um, building personas of people so we understand how to get the bigger picture of the lives of the clients that we're dealing with. And then uh, I work with a limited number of clients one-on-one every month uh, in a recover yourself process. I had a 20-year art career before I got into the healing world, and that art career has led me to do portraiture. And so like the beginning of our four stages of working together, I do a portrait of you. And that portrait, like a painting. Like it's an hour and a half, the first session. And I do this oil pastel painting of you. And then I give it to you. And there's an interesting thing about artwork and and portraiture in general. Like, I don't know if you've ever made art, but when you make art, like that piece of paper or that canvas changes from being a blank piece of paper to a painting. And it has a consciousness. And then you get to look at that thing and you exchange information about each other. You tell the the portrait, what it is, it tells you about yourself. And we utilize that connection that I do with, during the, the portrait. You talk to me about stuff. And then we utilize that connection as a very intimate sort of entryway to really looking at your triggers and what you uh, can accomplish and what you can do in your life. And, um, and then after four sessions, I do some energy work and, and off you go. The whole point, because I'm coming out of addiction is to work with you in a way that is not going to initiate any sort of codependency from the beginning. We know when it's going to end. Yeah. Yeah, You can do this this stuff remote. Yeah, it's all done. Well, it's not all done remote. I do work. I am partnered with a yoga studio here in Chicago. Uh, so if you wanted to work personally, one-on-one, okay. we can work in Chicago, but most of this has been done remotely. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, a lot of my listeners are. Yeah. All over. All around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I speak Spanish and English. I always prefer English because it is my first language. So it's always easier for me to work in that language, but. Cool. Okay. That. I always like to ask this question before, mm-hmm. before we end is if you had a message to those out there struggling, what would you tell them? Um, I, I think I would ask the thing that was asked of me. It's like it with, with all the love and compassion I have, I would love if you can answer, is this working out for you? Mm. And that's it. Like, I just, and if this is it and it works for you, you have all my love Mm -hmm. and compassion. And I, I hope that you 
get what you're what you're looking for. Yeah. But if not, just recognize that. I don't want you to get help you're not looking for. I don't want you to do anything other than start from this place of recognizing that this is not, this may not be what you want. Mm -hmm. That's it. With all my love, like yeah. that question is coming from. And that's, that's what I would say. It wouldn't be a statement. It would be a question. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've said on here too, before I've said that, you know, for all of those out there, you know, that are, you know, in pain or in suffering or stuff like that. I love you. Yeah. Cause I don't, I know you don't probably hear that much. Yeah. You know and I mean? you know, it, I've gotten to a place in my life where I love myself so much. I can tell you that I love you and mean it, mm -hmm. you know, like, I think, I think, you know, I don't think we, we say, I love you enough. And sometimes I think we say it too much, but but for the wrong reason sometimes. Right. And that's what I mean. You know, like we say it because we want something. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people hear it from that place a lot because mm -hmm. they don't understand what it means to love truly. Right. Like without, like, you don't have to be anything for me. Like, I'm not looking for you to be here for me in any way. I'm looking for you to be you in every way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 True love is, is nothing that, you know, I'm, I'm seeking anything for. That's right. You know, it's just something that I'm, I want Giving you to know that I love you, you know? That's right. Oh man, yeah. that's right. <laughs> so it's, yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that's something that I, uh, I believe in strongly, you know, um, with all of the clients I work with, with everybody I work with, you know, that um, it's a genuine care, you know, Mm -hmm. appreciation. I mean, it was one of my, you know, appreciation is the strongest outbound form of love. The idea of giving of everything and asking for nothing, That's right. true appreciation, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and I'll tell clients this all the time too, you know, I'll say, Hey, I just want you to know, I appreciate you, you know? Yeah. Um, because, uh, and I do, I really do. You know, I, I, yeah. I always go into, as I was kind of saying in the beginning of this is that I'm a teacher and a student, you know? And, uh, and I genuinely appreciate working with these people. These people teach me stuff all the time. I love it when they'll say something and I'll even think, oh, damn, I've never thought about it that way. Right. It's good. You know, <laughs> that's right. You know, like they have these points of views because they were, they, everybody does. And that's the thing. It's not just people with addiction and stuff. It's like, if you have spent any time quiet with yourself, you have you there somewhere. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Hey, I want to thank you so much for, uh, for jumping on here. Absolutely. And, um, um, I want to thank everybody for tuning in to again, another episode of high wall clean. Um, as I always like to end this thing, keep getting high, but let's do it clean. I'll see you soon. Thanks. Thanks.